0: Quantum computing is almost ready to tackle the most complex supply chain problems. Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, editor-in-chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. We hear a lot about quantum computing these days, but it's not always clear what the term means and how it can be applied to practical questions in supply chain management. The need for supercharged computing capability in this area is inarguable, but whether it's actually ready to do the job is another matter entirely. On this episode, I'm joined by Christopher Savoy, CEO of Zapata Consulting, who will explain just what quantum computing is how far along it is toward reaching its full potential, the kinds of supply chain problems that it's ideally suited to solve, and the technical barriers that stand in the way of full implementation. Even in its nascent form, though, it can help companies achieve competitive advantage in a hugely complex world of choices and variables. Here's my conversation with Christopher Savoy. Christopher Savoy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Bob. We're going to be talking about optimizing supply chain and logistics with quantum computing. But before we get into that discussion specifically, I would appreciate your helping to understand just how is quantum computing different from traditional computing? Traditional
1: computers, basically the computers we use every day, everything from your iPhones, the semiconductor that's in your anti-lock brakes on your car, to, to a personal computer... All of these work on a principle of on-off switches, basically, transistors that are either on or off. And this is what gives us digital, this binary, if we call it that, representation of zeros and ones. And everyone's kind of heard, I think, zero, one, zero, one being the language of computers, because that's what it is. It's basically on-off switches. And we've figured out, computer scientists have figured out how to use operations on zeros and ones, on and off switches, a big set of on and off switches, to figure out some pretty complex stuff. So everything from how to display a photo on your iPhone to how we might talk over the internet is done with these zeros and ones on modern traditional computers. But basically, Mm. it's these are on off switches. The thing with quantum computers is for the first time, we're able to use a different kind of physics, a different kind of computation that's different from anything that we've done with computers, or for slide rules for that matter, or abacuses since the beginning of human civilization we're for the first time able to use quantum physics to be able to do computation in a very unique way. And what does that mean? It means that we're able to take, instead of having an on switch that's either one or zero, so a a bit is what we call that, we can now have a quantum bit or a qubit that allows us to have both one and zero in kind of a limbo. It's neither one nor zero or both, if you want to call it that. Technically, neither of those. It's a probability that it's either on or off. When things get small, you can do that. When things get really, really tiny, things start to behave in a way that's not there or here or there. Maybe you've heard of the Schrodinger's cat example, where is the cat dead or alive? You don't know until you look at it. Well, that's what this is. So for the first, we knew about this stuff since the 1920s with famous physicists like Einstein and Schrodinger and these other people. About the 1990s, we're able to show that we could actually use this principle to do something unique in computation, which is put things in this superposition is what we call it when it's kind of in limbo between a one and a zero. Well, what does that do for us? Well, we use that along with another property when things get small, they get really, really strange. So usually a bit is kind of like a coin flip, right? It's either heads or tails, right? Coins are independent. If you flip one coin, it doesn't influence the other coin, how it's gonna be heads or tails, right? When you flip them random, two coins randomly. But when things get small, they get really weird. So we can get these two things to do this thing called entanglement where they become linked to each other. So if you get heads on one, you get heads on the other, heads on one, you get tails on the other so that they're actually linked together. And so what these features do for you combined is that you have something that's in limbo, that's entangled with something else that's in limbo, that's entangled with something else that's in limbo. And then when you observe one of them, you basically observe them all. They all Mm -hmm. have to flip into what they are, heads or tails, zero or one, just like a classical computer. At that point, it becomes an answer, right? Like you would get in a classical computer. So this process, by using that and then using another thing called interference, we're able to drive algorithms that use these principles to get answers really quickly. Why is that? Well, just the math of this is that instead of having one bit for each register, right, each register Mm -hmm. of computation, we now have two bits for every register. So for every quantum bit that you add, you double the amount of computing. Well, that may not sound like a lot, two times the amount, right, per bit. But when you multiply that, it's exponential. So it's two to the n is, is the math of it. So two to the number, two to the power of the number of bits that you have. Also doesn't sound very powerful yet. But when you think about, say, 300 qubits, we're up to some systems are are claiming, some folks are claiming that they have about 100 qubits now. IBM has 127 qubits that they've built into a system now. And people are getting, there's been a 256 qubit neutral atom machine that has been published. So when you get up to that number, it's two to that, whatever that number is, 100 bits, 200 bits, doesn't sound like a lot. But when you put that number in the exponent, what it does is, Well, two to the 300, to give you an idea, two to the 300 doesn't sound like a big number, two times two times two times two. But if you do that 300 times, that number, Mm -hmm. two to the 300, is a larger number than all of the hydrogen atoms in the visible universe.
0: Wow. All
1: right. I'll just pause for a moment (laughs) there to give you an idea of the power that that computation does. So Mm -hmm. by using this weird kind of physics, we're able to do some pretty powerful computation that hasn't been able to be accomplished before.
0: Okay, so you just described some IBM computers. I guess the question is, to what extent are quantum computers, such as you just described to me, in actual use today, as opposed to just being a concept that scientists are working toward creating?
1: Yeah, this is not conceptual, nor has it been for some time now. We've had qubits that have done this kind of stuff in labs initially. But since about the year 2014, 2015, around that time frame, these things have moved into from laboratories in physics departments or in government labs into commercial organizations such as IBM, such as Google, such as some startups like Rigetti or IonQ. And now these qubit technologies are being commercialized. And so Mm. these are real systems that you can actually play with if you You want you can go to the IBM QX experience and actually play with an actual quantum computer over the cloud yourself. And there's a little tutorial there on how to actually run a small quantum program on a small quantum computer consisting of five of these qubits. Now, that's not a very large register. It's not a very large computer, but it's actually working and you can play with it. That one is more of a quote-unquote toy size, but there are ones that are getting larger and larger now.
0: So what we get is massive increases in computing power and speed, clearly. So I'd like to know then, how do we apply this to the supply chain? There are several areas here where I think you believe that it can be of value. Tell me what they are. Tell me what some of them are where you think this really comes into play as a powerful tool for supply chain management.
1: In supply chain management, we have a lot of complex computational problems, actually. They're quite complex. On first glance, it may not seem like a big deal, for example, in what order you might want to fill up 700,000 vending machines full of drinks, which is an actual example that we had from one of our customers. It sounds not so complex, but 700,000 machines, in what order do you fill them, turns out to be a very complex mathematical problem when you start doing this. There's the problem of the traveling salesperson that is often referenced here, where you go, from point A to point B to point C, and then back to point A. So in which order do you do that? It turns out to be a really hard problem. Like, do you go from A to B to C, or from C to B to A? And which route with the least fuel and the least distance do you take in doing that? And three nodes is not a big deal, but that quickly explodes to the point where you have 16 of those nodes, and you're up to 85 billion possible choices if you just have two variables, like speed, distance, and...
0: So, and that's, a, and that's and classical computing just can't do the job when it comes to that level of complexity. So, in your it,
1: it could do it, but it would take a thousand years to get the job done. Oh,
0: so, okay, a little bit, a little bit
1: late. <laughs> so, so when you have to figure out your driving route schedules day by day, or you're a complex logistics business like FedEx or DHL or EPS, or anyone who has a complex demand or supply chain, you don't have a thousand years to figure out the best route. And this is the problem. So. What we do today is basically we split up the problem by city and then by district and then try to make the problem smaller and smaller. And in a lot of cases, we're leaving it to humans to make these kinds of decisions. And we leave it to the driver to make a lot of these decisions in in a lot of these cases.
0: Okay, so that's root optimization. That's one important use for potential use for quantum computing. What about also the optimization of machine learning for preventive maintenance? Tell me about that.
1: Well, we've been using machine learning recently for doing preventive maintenance for trying to do these time scheduled uh, detection of things. So when you have event A happen, then event B happen, then event C happen, well, you know, you got a problem, especially if they happen in that order. Right. So this time Mm -hmm. series kind of data is what gives us clues to determine when we might be having a problem or what indicates there's a high percentage that we're going to have a problem with the machine or a route or an event. Right, So this time series kind of data is very complex, and it's one of these difficult computational problems. Quantum computing, especially if we combine it with machine learning, gives us an enhanced way of optimizing these kind of computational problems and coming to an optimal solution, basically an optimal detection of those features that might lead us to believe that something bad is going to happen, like a machine is ready for maintenance because it's about to have a problem or catastrophic failure or something like that.
0: And that could be a piece of material handling equipment. That could be a truck, anything that has to do with any machine that serves the supply chain, I guess? Yeah, it could be
1: anything in the supply chain. So it could be anything from your warehousing equipment, for your distribution equipment, or the actual fleet management problems that you have in the field, whether you're using an electric or an ICE vehicle. Mm -hmm. Battery predictive maintenance is a big deal.
0: So a, a third potential use, warehouse and distribution optimization. Quantum computers helping to understand optimum warehouse layouts and distribution processes. Talk about
1: that a little bit. In the case of a complex warehouse setup, you really have a lot of different variables, continuous variables and discrete variables and again, what this does is it makes the computational space of trying to predict what you need where and when and how and how to move things around efficiently in a complex setup like that ends up becoming a very complex mathematical problem very quickly you just had two variables or three variables have been one thing but a lot of the cases when you're managing things over space even a 2d diagram of space the possible routes and movements that you might have in warehousing and storage possibilities is enormous even in 2d and most warehouses are not 2d you stack things put things in different directions so that movement for a forklift to be taking a pallet from a certain place to another place depending on the frequency of what's needed at a given time, and you can start thinking how complex this gets, the variable space of this blows up pretty quickly. So we've been using machine learning to try and learn what those variable, what that space is and reduce that complexity. And what quantum computing can do in the near term is enhance our ability to navigate that what we would call mathematically a latent space in mm. machine learning.
0: Okay, so again now, we've, we've established that quantum computing is a thing, that it actually does exist, but to what extent is it being applied to these supply chain problems we're talking about today extensively? That's still something that's in the future.
1: Uh-huh, yeah, that's the billion dollar question in a lot of these cases. And unfortunately, or fortunately, if you're just getting started in this, the computers that we have right now, so say A 127-qubit computer that I mentioned or a 100-qubit machine is not yet big enough. And these computers that we have now, the quantum computers that exist as of today, are a bit noisy to be able to do these kind of computations at a production level. So Mm -hmm. we're still a couple of years away from being able to put any of these quantum computers into a daily available production type of instance. That's the bad news. The good mm-hmm. news is that we can use the same techniques that we're using by simulating on a classical computer what we can do quantumly. We can actually find these advantages by using the same algorithm, but running it on a simulated quantum computer today. So we're mm-hmm. not going to get a thousandfold, billionfold increase in our capabilities until we have better quantum computers, which are coming down the line. It's not a, an if, it's a when. But today, we can take advantage of the same kinds of techniques to get an advantage over classical machine learning that doesn't use these quantum techniques. So we can use the same kind of techniques by simulating the way a quantum computer works on a classical computer and get similar advantages in the answers. Now, Mm -hmm. what does that translate to? It translates to maybe 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 or 10% better than your standard classical machine learning algorithms. However... 2% 2% better, 3% better, 4% better in your supply chain can move the needle a lot for a lot of companies. The question would be, oh, do I get started now or should I wait until that perfect quantum computer shows up in my data center or on AWS or Azure? And the answer I would say, I would suggest is, well, you might as well get started now with the 2 3 5% better answers because the algorithms aren't going to change. And you might lose to your competitor that's already studying this and already going to be able to implement this pretty immediately when those computers come online.
0: You referenced the problem of environmental noise, which leads to, I understand, so-called decohering qubits and causing a number of random errors in the system. You do believe that that problem will be solved, and if so, how long will it take before that happens?
1: This is an engineering problem. We basically, we know what the noise is. We know why the noise is there. We know pretty much how it can be mitigated in a lot of these cases. And the noise is a little bit different on each of these different types of qubits that we have. Some use ions. Some use these superconducting qubits, and so the sources of noise are a little bit different in those cases. But in all cases, you have to deal with this noise. We're getting better and better at suppressing this noise. We're getting better and better at avoiding it, detecting it, avoiding it, and mitigating it. It's constant work, and it's incremental improvement. And we're seeing every month, every week even, new publications and new work in the field of getting better and better error mitigation, both on the hardware side, by physically changing the device to have lower error and on the software side by changing the algorithms in a way that makes them more robust to error or makes the error detection and mitigation a lot easier.
0: Well, it sounds like a really exciting future. Christopher Savoy of Zapata Computing, thank you for helping me to understand. Actually, one of the clearest explanations I've had to date about just what quantum computing is, how it can be applied to the supply chain, and where it is now and where it might be in the future. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Christopher Savoy of Zapata Computing, talking about the role of quantum computing in optimizing supply chain and logistics. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my think tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at scbrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well, and see you next time.